0: Speed up with podcast speed
1: up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org.
0: Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co host, Julia Galeff. Julia, what are we going to talk about today?
2: Massimo, we have a guest with us in studio today. Uh, I'd like to welcome Matthew Hudson to the show. Matthew is a science journalist in New York City. He has degrees in cognitive science and in science writing from Brown and MIT. And he was the news editor at Psychology Today for uh, four years, from 2006 to 2010. And he's also freelanced for a bunch of other great publications, including Wired, Discover, Scientific American Mind, and the New York Times Magazine. And most recently, he has published a book called The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, which we are going to explore in detail during the episode. Welcome, Matt.
1: Great to be here.
0: So, Matt, what's the basic idea? Superstition is good.
1: Well, (laughs) I started out not with the idea to argue that superstition is good. I basically wanted to explain, explain superstition. Uh, I argue that we all have a tendency to believe in magic on at least some deep level. We all tend to believe in things like luck and God and life after death and essences and, and destiny and karma and that sort of thing. Uh, so first I just wanted to uh, try to figure out why this type of rationality is so common. Um, and then I wanted to look at what the effects are. What are the, the upsides and the downsides? Uh, and to me, the more surprising aspect was that there are some upsides. Uh, even though uh, these are illusions, there are some benefits to these illusions.
0: So can you give us an example of a good superstition?
1: So the belief in luck, for instance. Uh, there's one study I, I like to cite uh, in which subjects were given a golf ball and asked to make 10 golf putts. And half the subjects were told that the golf ball was a lucky golf ball. And these subjects actually made 35% more successful golf butts than the other subjects. So just feeling lucky increased their self-efficacy and increased their performance. And then there were other studies by the same researchers showing that when people had a lucky charm or when they were wished good luck, they performed better on other cognitive or physical tasks.
0: Now, just to make sure, um, I I, I know that... There is no suggestion here that there actually is such a thing as luck or charm or something, right? So what's the mechanism that uh, causes that effect? People believe that they're lucky, but what actually is making the difference?
1: So the researchers found that it increased self-efficacy. People Mm -hmm. felt more self-confident. And so when you feel more self-confident, you're more likely to set higher goals for yourself, and you're more likely to persist when you encounter difficulties.
2: I uh I remember a quote from uh the physicist Niels Bohr who had it was some lucky charm nailed to his door, I believe. Yes, and it was a
0: horseshoe. A horseshoe, thank <laughs> you.
2: And uh, his fellow physicists were surprised to see this lucky charm on the door of such a brilliant physicist. And uh, they asked, surely you don't believe in this? And and Bohr, at least according to the story, replied, of course not, but I hear it works even if you don't believe in it.
1: Right. Yes. So but that I
2: is not, what you're, exactly. you get, right? not <laughs> what you're claiming. Exactly, that's not what you're claiming.
0: It actually works if you do believe Only it. Only
1: if you believe it. But yeah, so that's the point I make in the book. Mm-hmm. I mention that, uh, that, that anecdote, and I say that It's sort of the opposite. It works only if you believe it.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so just to be clear here, the the kind of superstition you're talking about uh, is is not the the stuff that skeptics tend to focus on, like astrology and uh, and um, uh, the Secret, for example. Or would you would you consider that more blatant? You do. Yeah. So, and is your general attitude that uh, superstition has Benefits, um, but that the net effect is not necessarily positive or is it, or do you actually think the net effect of superstition is positive?
1: It's hard to say what the net effect is. Um, All I'm saying is that there are some positive effects. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I said, that to me was the more surprising element. I I grew up uh, well until I was 10 or so I went to church every week and Mm -hmm. I was um, a Christian and then I became an atheist and a very outspoken atheist when I was Mm -hmm. a kid and, Sort of, I argued with everyone who believed in God and who believed in anything supernatural and and said that it was all negative and there are no positive sides to it. Um, and so I'm coming from that position where it's interesting to think that, oh, maybe it's, it's not so bad and maybe this does things for people.
0: But that's an interesting analogy right there. So, um, you know, I've, I, I could see myself on eight days, and I suppose by certain people's standards are pretty outspoken. But nonetheless... Um, I don't I wonder why, but <laughs> I'm sorry. But uh, yeah, there was this little skeptical um reaction from Julia there. <laughs> anyway uh Nonetheless, I never bought into the idea that religion doesn't have any positive effect, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that seems flatly contradicted by the empirical evidence, both anecdotal and actually systematic. Mm-hmm. That is, there's all sorts of things, good things, that good effects that religious beliefs do have, right? I mean, there's a sort of all sorts of, you know, charity donations, for instance, are uh, remarkably higher among, you know, people who are religious, consider themselves religions than people that are not, for one thing. And if you think that a charitable donation is a good thing, you now you can argue that point, obviously. Well, but
2: charitable don- Charitable donations here include donations to their church, right? Um, or am I wrong about
0: that? they, they probably do. Okay. Um, but I think it's the, I think the way that the article I'm referring to, the study that I'm referring to, uh, actually calculated the you know sort of the net effect of the, the kind of the amount of money that actually goes into charitable okay. work, okay. M- okay. whether it's done by a religious organization or not. Okay. Just now so. the other thing is, of course, religious organizations themselves do you know work that often is socially useful and you know socially has a socially positive impact. So the whole idea that just because it comes from a religious organization or from uh, from a church is therefore inherently bad, inherently negative. I find it one of the silliest things that I've ever heard from, from atheists, and unfortunately it is a pretty widespread belief among atheists. That said, one could easily also counter argue that okay fine, but but you know, since it's not the religion per se that That causes causes those effects. There are all sorts of reasons why people might want to do charitable thing, or there are sorts of reasons that that might induce people to behave in a certain way rather than another. So clearly, Mm -hmm. although religion is one way to achieve that goal, because it does in fact have equally obvious negative effects, uh, perhaps we should look for other ways of you know, incentivizing people to do right, yeah. certain things. So wouldn't the same uh, apply for, to, to the idea that superstition is useful? I mean, perhaps it is. In fact, it, it, I, I should drop the perhaps. The empirical evidence is pretty clear that it is under certain circumstances, but maybe we can find ways to Make people work harder and and uh, and be more effective at what they're doing without actually telling them that their golf balls are magical.
1: Yeah, so that's that's a good point. Um, Some of the benefits that are achieved through magical thinking, such as a sense of control or a sense of meaning in life, can be achieved through secular beliefs. Um, It's unclear which one works better in any given situation. Um, So that's something. That's an area where we definitely need. Need more research.
0: So the idea is that there may be certain areas where there is no substitute or no no equally efficacious substitute. It's
1: possible there there could be situations where magical thinking is the most effective. A uh, tool in in your toolbox,
0: but did your research actually show that there are some? There, there, are there examples that are already known of that? That's what I'm asking, I guess. Or is it? I mean, it's, it, I grant you that it's a possibility, obviously, right. but I
1: don't know of any clear experiments okay. where they take a magical belief and a secular belief that both have the same goal and see which one is more effective in the way right. that you would test, right. like two different medications against each other. Yeah, yeah. I don't know of any clear cases of that, um, but people. Uh, do rely on magical thinking so frequently in life. I mean, it's such a common thing around the world and throughout human history in terms of religion and superstition and mystical beliefs. So that suggests uh, one advantage possibly of magical thinking is that it's so intuitive and that it comes as a second nature. You uh, You can automatically think that something is lucky before you even stop to question whether luck is real. Or you can... Uh, assume that something meant to happen, for instance, and that will provide you a sense of meaning in life before you even, um, you know, try to think about okay, how should I find meaning in, the, in this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, magical thinking—it's you know—it's it's a tool that can be used, and its ubiquity suggests that it's a very convenient tool.
2: How much stock do you put in the idea that we can be like selectively irrational in in? In the cases where we expect it to benefit us. Right, but yeah. not irrational in the cases where we don't... Like, it just seems like that... I know I, I cannot do that. Um, it's possible other people can, but it seems like it would require such a high level of double-think <laughs> to, to think something and not think it at the same time. It, I like, know a
0: couple of people that would fit that description, a high level of well, double-think. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, so
2: I'm not talking about people who compartmentalize and are yeah, irrational yeah. in some places and rational in others, because obviously that's widespread, uh, if not universal. It's just... I'm talking about, like thinking at some level about when you should be irrational and when you should not and trying to make a rational decision about when to be irrational and then somehow forget that you made that decision? How does this work? Do you have any insight into this?
1: That, that's a good question. How, basically, how can we fool ourselves and to what degree can we fool ourselves? Um, one one example, one personal example of this is knocking on wood. I tend to knock on wood um, if I say something that I think would... Um, you know, it seems as if it could jinx myself, even though I don't believe in jinxes, mm-hmm. um, then I'll have a natural reaction to knock on wood uh, and it eases my anxiety. It just makes me feel better. I know that it doesn't have any direct physical effect on my fortunes that, it, that are not mediated by my own thoughts and behaviors, mm-hmm. um, but I do it anyway. And so it's the kind of thing where part of me believes this is BS and then part of me believes... Uh, you know, I should do this. And so uh, you can have these two parts of yourself and they can sit next to each other and you can strategically say, OK, I'm going to do I'm rationally deciding to perform this irrational behavior for a, uh, a, a cause, for uh, an, a known outcome. So yeah, that would be performing... like a, like, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, the, 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 the known outcome be like being a, in... reduced anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be like um,
0: exploding, consciously exploding a placebo effect. Exactly. Yeah.
2: yeah, but hasn't there actually been research showing that placebos work even if people know that they're placebos? Right. Which so I read that and then I I wondered whether that only works if you know that placebos work even if you know that they're placebos. So
1: it it could be sort of an iterative thing. Right. Or, yeah. how, right, many, that's how the many, many layers, layers thing of about. self dece- the, the deception you want to add to yeah, this thing.
2: That's yeah. That's the weird thing about a lot of this stuff that uh, unless you're you're actually uh, believing or trying to get yourself to believe some 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 empirically wrong fact about uh, like physics <laughs> or or you know the chain of causality in this case uh, unless you're doing that all you're really believing is if I believe this then it will happen and if that is true then it's there's sort of this weird like superposition of rational or irrational there yeah. where like yeah. you know it's irrational but then it comes true and therefore it was it was correct and you were correct to believe it so it's rational yeah. but it's like self
1: fulfilling prophecy yeah. So I think it's actually not as hard as it's uh, as it might seem in that our natural inclination is to believe in magic and to believe in you know destiny or luck or these sorts of things and so it's a matter of allowing yourself to go along for the ride and mm-hmm. and sort of not damper down not not suppress these mm-hmm. intuitions so yeah, but actually, let's
0: explore for a second actually these this idea of natural magic mm-hmm. uh, natural belief in magic so um First of all, from an empirical standpoint, uh, are we claiming that uh, belief in magic is natural because it's, I don't know, present across cultures? Is it um, It's certainly not universal among human beings? I mean, there are some people who don't actually believe in magic, right? Um,
1: well, I should I should clarify what I mean by magical thinking. Um, yes, that would be a good yes. thing, actually, before <laughs> back, we go any further. Back up a little bit. Um, okay. <laughs> so... When I talk about magical thinking or magical beliefs, I'm not referring just to explicit conscious beliefs. I'm also referring to biases or intuitions or, okay. or feelings or, you know, if you have sort of a subtle sense that something supernatural might be happening, um, even if you can consciously reason yourself out of it. So, for instance, my knocking on wood, even though I can reason that knocking on wood is, is you know, not – is BS – Um, I would still count that as an example of subtle magical thinking.
2: I think this is really interesting because it forces us to break down a little bit, our concept of what it means to have a belief that there are a lot of things like we might act as if we have a belief, but if we never consciously think that thing, um, I mean, at a certain point, this is a question about semantics. Like, do we want to call that a belief or not? Uh, It doesn't matter that much except for, you know, the utility of communicating with other people. But, Uh, but it does at least show that, that belief is not as clear-cut a concept as one might naively think.
0: No, in fact, there is there is actually a fairly large uh, uh, literature in philosophy about the concept of belief and, and, and the different aspects of it. I mean, yes, you're right if uh, to some extent that becomes a matter of semantics, but it is actually a matter of making interesting distinctions. I think that, for instance, the one you just um, handed out, the distinction between a conscious belief and an unconscious belief, you know, you may or may not want to use the same word there, belief, yeah. but you certainly want to qualify it yeah. because clearly the fact that I have a certain bias, or unconscious bias, or, or way of reacting to certain things is very different uh, from the fact that I'm holding on a certain notion because I thought about it and reflected, and I and I decided that that is actually you know something that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, regardless of whether we use the word belief in both cases or not, they're distinct things.
2: Yeah, I actually I feel a little confused about what's going on uh, belief wise when I get really wrapped up in a story, you know, I, it sort of feels like some part of my brain believes that, that these people are real people, which is why I care about them. But I, I feel like I could also quite plausibly describe what's going on as my brain imagining what if it were the case that such and such, how sad would that be? Um, and I don't actually know, I don't know what, which way of describing what's happening is more correct. And I don't know what kind of evidence I could look at to, to indicate which of those descriptions is more correct.
1: There's a philosopher at Yale named Tamar Gendler who uses mm. a separate word for this type of belief called a leaf.
2: Yeah, so, actually, I yes.
1: Like when you're if you're watching a movie and mm-hmm. you become engrossed in the movie, or one example she uses is if you're walking on the glass platform that hangs out over the yeah. edge of the Grand Canyon and you feel and you terrified look down and you feel scared, uh-huh. it's the a leaf that you're in danger. Uh-huh. Yeah,
2: I'm really, I've read about this, uh, and I'm really interested in, uh, discordances between our beliefs and a-leafs. And sometimes it's a case where our, our belief is actually correct that we won't fall uh, from yeah. this bridge. Um, whereas our a leaf is incorrect. And other times it's the reverse, uh, that our, like, so for example, you might, you might think that you believe, um, that you will go to heaven when you die and you might like reflectively endorse that belief. But you don't act as if you believe it um, because you would, you know, feel happy when people die who are virtuous because they're, you know, in bliss for the rest of eternity now. But you don't actually feel that way. And that's sort of an indication that your A-leaf might be different from your B-leaf.
1: We should also mention that
2: A-leaf here, the A is, is, I think, uh, short for anticipation. So it's like what what your anticipations about the world indicate about this, like, unconscious belief. Mm.
0: And in that, that's an interesting example however, because that's an example where actually your A-leaf uh, makes more sense than your belief. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> right, right, right. So
2: I was, I was trying to contrast that to the case yeah. of walking on the glass bridge, where your B-leaf makes more sense than the A-leaf, yeah. Right.
0: Now, so let's go back to what counts as magic. Um, so now... If, you, you don't think, however, that every bias, for instance, let's like, say any no. cognitive bias would count this as no. magic, right? Okay.
1: So the way I define it in the book is it's the attribution of mental properties to non-mental phenomena or non-mental uh, properties to mental phenomena. So a case of the former would be believing that things happen for a reason, believing that natural events right. in the world have some sort of inherent intention in them. Right. Mm -hmm. An an example of the latter would be believing that your thoughts can have direct causal influence on the world through mind over matter and the law of attraction, that sort of thing. Or the idea that your thoughts can contaminate something and be transmitted as some sort of essence through contact.
0: Right. So the first one would be a case of what um, Dan Dennett calls an an intentional stance, right? So so the idea that we project agency onto things that don't necessarily have agency. Yeah. Um, That seems to be one of the most plausible explanations for the very origin of supernatural beliefs to begin with, right? Right. and the, the origin of, of essentially the kind of belief that eventually led to, to religion. So um,
1: hyperact- hyperactive agency detection. Correct.
0: And now the argument has been made, as, as you know, that, um, that um, uh, tendency to project agency um, is possibly evolved because it was somewhat adaptive, right? The, the, the typical scenario there is, well, if you're walking in the middle of the forest and, you've, and you uh, hear the leaves moving, it could be the wind or it could be a predator. You know, if, if it's a wind, which is clearly a non-agentive cause... Um, and you go with that explanation, but it turns out there was actually an agent, there was actually a predator after you, then you dinner, and that's, that's the end of the story. If you make the opposite mistake, on the other hand, well, if you've lost this, you know, you got scared a little bit, but it turns out it was, in fact, the wind.
2: Wait, but wouldn't hyper y thinking there be thinking that the wind was, was intentionally, uh, like, ruffling the leaves, or...? That well, like no. The, the analog- idea is that
0: if it is in fact the wind, you don't. But the, your immediate reaction is that you don't think it's the wind. that You immediately think that it's a predator, even if it is in fact the wind. Right. So that you tend to assume that, 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 that your default assumption is that there is an agent
1: behind. I, I the think there's sort of two similar but different concepts concepts here. So one would be anthropomorphism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as uh, Stuart Guthrie, the anthropologist, has written, it's better to mistake a boulder for a bear that's mistake, a bear for a boulder. It's yeah. <laughs> a um,
2: nice, concise way of putting it, yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then treating the wind, not as an animal, but treating the wind as caused by some sort of intentionality, like maybe God is blowing on the trees, that would be teleology. Right. That would be seeing some uh, phenomenon in the world, not as an agency in itself, but as uh, the effect of some sort of agency.
2: Mm, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask about that because... Some forms of magical thinking, it wasn't clear to me how they fit into the definition of, uh, of intentionality, like believing that there's some uh, plan, for example, that, mm-hmm. that things, things were fated to happen a certain way. Does that count as intentionality in the world? I believe so. Okay.
1: Um, I'm, I'm counting it under that umbrella, seeing okay. anything in the world as being caused by uh, some sort of mind well, than, I
2: don't know if fate implies that. I mean, I, I can't tell exactly what people are thinking when they think they believe in fate, but it didn't seem necessarily tied to uh, like a, a conscious entity.
1: Well, if it's if we're talking about, um, I guess determinism, mm-hmm. where things are just sort of preordained in terms of uh, billiard balls, mm-hmm. you know, one thing physically causing yeah. another, then that wouldn't be magical thinking. Yeah, but no, if it's yeah. fate, as in some sort of supernatural entity, wanted something to happen.
2: I don't know if it's that clear in people's minds. They're thinking of then, things like, "This is the person I was meant to be with." You know, I don't know what uh, yes, people are bet, thinking
1: met, when they met, say I that. I think that. That is magical right. thinking.
0: Yeah, oh, bit, okay. because then the question of immediately, "But, but I think atheists, <laughs> atheists
2: think this too. Well, like they, they may not."
0: As we said earlier, it's not that to have a monopoly on not being wrong about a certain oh, things. <laughs>
2: Right, but, no, but I, was but I
0: just, wanted to explore yeah. this
1: idea actually. Exactly, even up. atheists are, are guilty of thinking magically sometimes. Yeah, yeah I was just right. trying
2: to separate right. that form of thinking magically from the belief in some kind of supernatural entity.
0: But I wanted to comment on the, on the distinction between fate and, and determinism actually, because okay. that that is an interesting one. Um, that um, and, and there is a fairly clear distinction. I mean, Julie is right that you know it, it's sometimes, sometimes somewhat vague what people actually mean by by fate. Um, but there is even within philosophical traditions there is a very clear distinction there, uh, which is uh, determinism certainly does not imply any conscious agency. Right, so you can be a thoroughgoing materialist and say, okay, um, the universe just goes by mechanical laws, and whatever is happening now, this conversation was uh, uh, bound to happen from the Big Bang. And that's it. You know, end the story. That doesn't have anything to do actually with fate. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of fate is that actually there is a particular plan of action. There's a particular way in which events are supposed to, to go so that anything that deviates from that plan is somehow counteracted by whatever agency is in charge of the fate thing. So this is the classic idea of, of the Greek tragedies, right? The, the, tra- the Greek tragic hero is somebody who knows, let's say, he's, he's told that he's going to kill his mother and uh, his father and, and marry his mother. And so he goes away uh, and starts traveling to avoid his fate and then somehow, in fact, manages still without knowing to kill his father and marry his mother. Yes. So mm-hmm. that's the idea there is that it doesn't matter where you go. Somehow the universe, the gods or whatever it is, so conjures things up so that you're going to go back to the way you were supposed to go.
2: You know what I, I love about Hollywood's take on that trope? Um, they basically preserve that whole you can't escape your fate trope, except you can escape it if you have true love. Ah. (laughs) i've seen that in so many movies
1: (laughs) that's
0: how you break out of your fate. but the basic idea therefore is that for determinists, it wouldn't make any sense to say oh you're trying to escape fate there's no way to escape fate Mm -hmm. it's there's just one trajectory and that's that's the end of the story Mm -hmm. for somebody who believes in fate on the other hand there may be different trajectories but they're all going to converge into there's certain points in that in your existence or in history they're going to happen anyway Mm -hmm. regardless of what else you might do before that so
1: that's teleological reasoning or teleos is greek for an end like so there's some sort of end or or purpose in mind and you know if you deviate from some path and it's all sort of like a like a river it's all gonna head towards the same you know tributary now
0: so so what i was going to with with bringing up the the idea of um of uh, the evolution of or the alleged evolution of um, of agency projection, and I say alleged because, as our listeners know, I tend to be f- somewhat skeptical of you know sort of evolutionary psychological ideas about um, or claims about where things come from uh, biologically. Not because they're implausible necessarily. I mean, I find this one particularly plausible, for instance, but because it's hard or or next to impossible to actually find evidence of that. I mean, one would have to have some way to measure the fitness effect in, you know, Pleistocene times of, you know, how many times you actually thought people thought that they had, people who had a tendency to think in a, in a genetic way, did they actually have, survive and have more children than the ones that did? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, that seems plausible, but it's... you uh, would have to
1: run human evolution over a hundred yeah, times yeah, in different the, circumstances. Yeah, it's
0: the kind of thing that it's not, not feasible. So, but... Still, if one doesn't consider those explanations sort of uh, to rise to the level of science, but, but only to the level of plausibility, okay? Mm-hmm. This is a plausible scenario. It's, you know, fine. Now, where do you see... So, in, in your mind, is all magical thinking of that type? In other words, does magical thinking also plausibly derive from the fact that it was advantageous at some point in the past?
1: Um, clearly, a lot of magical thinking is at least a side effect of adaptive features of cognition. So for instance, the way that we intuitively judge causality, for instance, the sort of, if A is before B and, uh, A is related to B and there's no other obvious cause of B, then we judge that A probably caused B, even if it doesn't really make logical, even if, you know, A is your, your thought about an event, you'll still have Mm -hmm. this intuition that your thought is caused event B.
2: Like that's Um, enough of a relation um, so yeah. when you say is related to B, you don't mean has some plausible causal connection to B? Sort of conceptually related. Conceptually so if you related, have a thought about an event
1: and then the event happens, then,
2: mm, you know. Yeah, know. So which translates
0: into a standard fallacy, right? Of, uh, yeah. of, Although it works pretty exactly.
2: well a lot of the time, which I guess exactly. is all that is needed for it to become an intuition in human so brains. We,
1: exactly. So we just have these heuristics that are very adaptive in many mm-hmm. situations. Right. And then sometimes as a side effect of having these mental shortcuts they lead to these sort of irrational beliefs in in God or mind over matter or that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So then the question is, do then those side effects, do they become adaptive in themselves and and does evolution select for those things in themselves? So for instance, if God is, or if belief in God is a side effect of um, hyperactive agency detection, is there then some advantage to belief in a supernatural God that then helps us survive and reproduce and some psychologists have argued that there is some advantage and so now um evolution has been selecting for yeah. for some of these natural I, I tend
0: honestly to be even more skeptical than that kind of conclusion <laughs> than, than, than the first order for for uh, uh, for reasons that go first of all that's a it's a derived hypothesis so um, evolutionary hypothesis, which means that if I'm already skeptical, of course, of the base hypothesis, I'm going to be even more skeptical of the yeah. derived one. Uh, it's going to be even more difficult to test. But the other thing is that once we get into these um, so- somewhat uh, highly abstract notions, such as, you know, the concept of religion or the concept of... Uh, uh, omnipotent God and that sort of stuff that, now now you 're getting into into areas where certainly cultural evolution had a major hand right. uh, now i don 't believe that cultural evolution is entirely independent of biological evolution, but I do think that there is a very good argument that one can make that um, the the closer in time you get to modern time, the more it's, things happen because of cultural evolution and not because of a biological evolution, simply in terms of time scales for one thing yeah um, you know over the last three thousand years the human genome hasn 't changed that much. Um, and that—that that actually is a fact of biological fact. That, mm-hmm. that any any explanation of these kinds of phenomena has to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, now, however, I want to go back to to uh, the broader question of okay. So so far we have that um, superstitious behavior, at least under certain conditions, can in fact be advantageous. Mm-hmm. And I'm using the word advantageous not in the sense of natural selection, but in the sense of you know, if you want to do better at golf, you better believe that your ball is magic.
2: Helping the individual, not the genes. That's
0: right. Yes. Exactly. So we're not talking about cultural stuff, cultural um, achievements, not, not genetic ones. Okay. Um, well, we, we don't know, however, according to your research, um, one important thing, which is uh, whether and how much the semi-fat can actually be accomplished by different means. So right. that's open to empirical, empirical questions. Right. We also don't know much about, or, or do we? I, I guess that would, that's my, my next question is, um, do we know much about the trade-off? That is, okay, believing in magic will allow you to do better at golf, but what else does it do that it's actually going to negatively affect what your life or your quality of life or the way you behave and so on?
1: Right. Um, so, yeah, there are obvious trade-offs. It's difficult to measure um, one versus the other. So, for instance, believe in, in destiny or fate Um, It can give you a sense that uh, there's meaning in life and it can help you deal with setbacks or it can help you deal with with trauma. If you sense that maybe a trauma was meant to happen, then it might be easier to find a silver lining um, and you can sort of deal with it better and and cope better and adjust better. So that would be an upside to belief in destiny or fate. But then a downside might be if something bad happens to to you, you might also have have the... uh, the reaction that the world is working against you and maybe this is a sign that you weren't meant to go down a certain path in life so in every aspect of magical thinking there there can be pluses and there can be there can be minuses, and it's very difficult to measure exactly. Okay, this has we'll give ten points to this positive effect, but then minus ten points to this other right. this other effect. Mm-hmm. So
0: there, there are two obvious objections there. Right? One one is that has been raised in the context by skeptics in the context of things like or notions like the secret. That mm-hmm. is that that kind of of um, attitude. Uh, implies essentially a, a blaming of the victim, right? So if it if it even is in fact true that positive thinking will bring good stuff to you, then yeah. by converse, it has to be true that if you got negative stuff going on in your life, it's your fault. Yeah, you, you were not positive enough. You were not, you know, you were not uh, able to, to uh, conjure up the right, um, you know, cosmic yeah. um, situation, and so that you know you got the cancer. I mean, I actually just saw today before uh, coming down for. For this episode, I saw a cartoon that sort of encapsulated this idea. There was the the, the 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 image was of this um, uh, person in the middle of uh, uh, of the ocean, surrounded by sharks, and and somebody else who was on the other hand safe was uh, shouting from distance. You know, just picturing yourself surviving this and then make it happen. Right? That well, was, yeah, <laughs> that was a near Yeah. <laughs> so it's like okay. Uh, so there's that up op- that 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 issue. Which you're right, it's difficult to um, to uh, sort of uh, quantify. Uh, although I suppose it's, it's possible, you know, social scientists do all sorts of interesting things with, with, these, with these problems. And I s- suspect that the reason uh, we might not have found much research in that area is because not that many people are actually working on, on the effect of, of superstitions and mm-hmm. trade-offs and so on. But that's one thing. The other objection is more, if you will, philosophical, but it's related to it. So, again, you mentioned fate a minute ago. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the philosophical objections to philosophies of life that are based, that incorporate an idea of fate, fate, such as many Eastern philosophies and the Western tradition, uh, Stoicism, is that they engender a, a uh, passive attitude towards social problems, right? So the Stoics, for instance, uh, were known for uh, this idea that, that um, you know, there's a lot of things you cannot change mm-hmm. in, in the way things work, um, which they derive from the idea of fate. They thought that there was, you know, a universal plan and then the universe was going one direction or another. And therefore, if you couldn't do certain things, that's because it was not meant to be. Now, the result of that, and so their their um, idea, their approach to this was, look, about those things, uh, you shouldn't be uh, worried about it. You shouldn't be, they shouldn't, that should not cause you pain or anything because that pain is simply a result of your attitude. You should change your attitude. Since you cannot change the thing in itself, you change your attitude. Well, that sounds nice and, and you know sort of positive until you realize that it, that's also a recipe for a passive attitude towards social change right so that means yeah. well there is a problem uh in society i mean it's what it's meant to be and i'm not going to be able to do anything about it so yeah.
1: so there's this concept um of negotiable fate which is the idea <laughs> that yeah so it's a kind of it's kind of a combination between um primary control which is uh, adapting your environment to fit your needs and secondary control, which is adapting yourself to fit your environment. Right. So the idea is you change what you can and the rest you accept.
0: That seems to me an eminently reasonable position, but, but, but <laughs> I doubt it's... Stretching it's the superstitious yeah, yeah, exactly. I I mean, that, that's not a specifically
1: superstitious. You know, superstitious idea. Right. It's just uh-huh. sort of a general, exactly. general concept.
2: Matt, I have this model of the relationship between rationality and... Uh, Like effectiveness or or happiness. And I think that one common mistake that's made is people talk about rationality as one thing, like you're either rational or you're not. Whereas I think it's much more realistic to model rationality as consisting of dozens or hundreds of different components um, and different combinations of those various components uh, can uh, make you better off to different degrees or not make you better off at all, or even in some cases make you worse off. And so this seems sort of like a case where uh, if you have the rationality module that uh, allows you to realize that there isn't any built-in purpose to the universe, um, that might make you actually worse off if you don't also have the rationality module that, uh, as as Erwin Edmund said, quote, the discovery that the universe has no purpose need not prevent a human being from having one. So right. if you don't have that like piece of rationality and you just have the former, then that could make you worse off. Um, but I don't know that that's a knock against rationality period just you know a warning about incomplete rationality
1: Um, yeah I would call that the rational use of irrationality Um, (laughs) which is a yeah so this is goes back to what we were talking about earlier where sort of the using the placebo effect on yourself, Mm -hmm. tricking yourself into believing a certain thing. So acknowledging, okay, there's no purpose in the world, but I'm going to go ahead and believe that I have a purpose because it gives me a a calling And that. So you're rationally deciding to hold that irrational belief.
2: Oh, I think the, well, at least the way I interpreted the Edmund quote, uh, was that you can choose, choose a purpose for yourself, not that you can irrationally believe that you have some built in purpose. Yeah. um, I I wanted before we close. I wanted to ask about something in you. You have this great article in the uh, New York Times Sunday Review um, from April, uh, sort of outlining some of the uh, points of your book. And towards the end, you say uh, magical. You say it, it, all of these benefits of magical thinking um, don't necessarily imply that there isn't a downside to magical thinking. Um, at its worst, it can lead to obsession, fatalism, or psychosis. You say, and then. You say, but without it, the existential angst of realizing we're just impermanent clusters of molecules with no ultimate purpose would overwhelm us. Um, do you, have you not met people who, uh, who really viscerally have internalized like reductionism and physicalism and everything, and and yet are still perfectly like happy and and enjoy life and are motivated. Because I it's feel a, like, it's a
0: trick question. <laughs> <laughs> that was
2: rhetorical. I mean, I feel like one of those myself. Essentially, I, not that I think I've gotten rid of every like instinctive piece of magical thinking, but when I when I think about the world as having no purpose. Um, as just being, you know, made of smaller, uh, unconscious, unthinking pieces interacting with each other, that doesn't bother me. Like it doesn't actually make me give me this existential despair that you right. seem to be assuming it gives everyone.
1: So I would argue that perhaps there is a layer of magical thinking that you're not recognizing. Uh, you're interesting. Somehow, so, for instance, uh, dualism—the sense that, or Cartesian dual, dualism uh-huh. specifically—the uh, sense that when you die, that's not completely hit and some part of you will live on. And, oh,
2: know, I feel life, like I've life. accepted that.
1: Um, I think that we, maybe you've accepted it logically and mm. I've accepted it logically, but I think there's still some intuitive part of us that is dualistic that we can't completely get rid of. And How that might think- be... Um, buffering our existential. So this would be the, the equivalent
0: of your knocking on wood, even though you know that it doesn't work, right? right? So, yeah. you, so the the example might be, for instance, an atheist who, even though he knows that there is no life life after death or something like that, he's still going to be concerned about what's going to happen to his body yes. after he dies or yes. something
1: like that, right? How
2: would I know if I have this like subconscious um. <laughs> intuition? think is this testable?
1: So there's a field called terror management theory Uh that explores what's called symbolic immortality, which is the belief that we will live on through our acts in the world or Uh through creating some sort of transcendent meaning. Um, And so there are ways of, uh, if you provide people a sense of, or give people the sense that they will live on through their creative acts in the world, Mm -hmm. and then measure how they react to reminders of death for instance, you mm-hmm. can see that that type of of prompt reduces their anxiety about death. So that's sort of a subtle way of getting at these subconscious beliefs about, about death. Have you
2: heard the quote from Woody Allen who said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my works, I want to achieve immortality through not dying. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that,
2: that's the that's,
0: idea that's about immortality. But now, I have one more thing that I guess to, to, to add to this thing, which is we have not actually gone into uh, that much, which is this. So let's say that we grant all the basic points. There is, is, in fact, a measurable uh, effect, empirically measurable effect, a positive effect of of, um, magical thinking. Now, let's assume for a moment that further research will even demonstrate that the trade-offs are not necessarily overwhelming, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in some cases. Um, Okay. Then there is a question of value, however. So there is a question of, well, what else do we value in life? Because basically, most of our discussion has been um, instrumental. That is, you know, if... If believing that the, the, the ball is magical allows me to win my, play, my game at in, in golf, then, you know, that's a good thing. Um, but in so doing, I accept consciously or unconsciously or I exploit a falsehood. So one objection there to the whole idea of sort of reevaluating supernatural magical thinking is, yes, but, but now what you're doing is you're dropping from the scheme of things a value, which is truth. Mm-hmm. right and so now you're saying basically anything goes as long as I can achieve the goal uh, you know whatever works now for some people that may be fine but other people may have an objection based on the fact that in that um, what is instrumentally rational depends on your values at least in part on your values not just on your objectives right um, because otherwise all of our actions would be in fact instrumental and they manifestly not sometimes we don't do something that is actually good for us uh, uh, in certain c- yeah. certain respects, because we hold certain values that sort of overwhelm, overwhelm, or
1: overwrite. So this gets um, into, I guess, utilitarianism versus correct. deontology. That's right.
0: So, so you think that this is a that that uh, this, that utilitarians would be more sympathetic to um, a, a, uh, rescuing a supernaturalist thinking than, say, a deontologist or
1: virtue ethicist well, like this is myself. A- a complex question in that. And um, we only
0: have 30 seconds
1: to answer, so go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Okay, now so. Now we have 27. Rationality is one, is one value um, that is important to you know hold dear, but there are also other values, for instance, irrationality. Um, without irrationality, there would be no love, for instance. Hmm. Um, uh, gone. Julia's going to there.
2: Oh, man. How can you, can you say that to me when we with, have 10 seconds, 10 seconds left? It's so unfair. <laughs> okay, just. <laughs> Go on. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <no,
1: laughs> yeah,
2: she'll hold that thought. No, no, go on. will that thought. I, 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 will, I will link on the website to a, a talk that I gave called The Straw Vulcan, in which I explicitly engage with that, that okay. argument. Okay, okay. but yeah. so yeah. please yeah. go on.
1: No,
0: yes. but, but so love or. Uh, for instance, well, love is a value. I'm not sure that, that um, it is, and I think that's what Julia would well, were. I think we're falling arguing. in
1: love, at least, is a form of insanity, temporary insanity. <laughs> it certainly has been defined that way.
0: Um, yeah, that's true. But there are some, perhaps one 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 of the things that's been missing then then here is a uh, the idea that there is actually a, a space in between rationality and irrationality. There are certain things that are simply irrational. They're not rational in the sense that there's not a particular reason to do it or a particular better way to do it, but they're not necessarily irrational, meaning that they don't actually involve any contradictions or any any, any any negative um, um, course of action or any any, yeah. any problematic course of action. Falling yeah. in love, perhaps, could be one of those. I think
2: people conflate irrational and irrational right? a lot, yeah. Um,
0: there is something, some choices are irrational. I mean, the fact that, you know, the obvious example is the fact that I prefer dark chocolate over any other kind of chocolate. It's not rational or irrational. It's just it's nothing to do with rationality. It's just a matter of taste. Yeah. Um, now, I still don't understand why anybody would eat anything other than dark chocolate. But, you know, and I can probably, I feel like I, I can make an argument that dark chocolate ought to be the thing to be. But I cannot do it because it, in fact, it, is, it is, in fact, an irrational um, thing. Now, and there's also another, con- another problem here. We may need to distinguish between reason and rationality. So I may have reasons why I say fall in love with somebody, but that may still actually turn out to be an irrational decision because perhaps it, you know, it actually end, uh, ended up in a predictable wreck or it's going to cost me a lot emotionally or financially or whatever. So you may have reasons, meaning that if you ask me, you know, why did you fall in love with that person? I can it's actually not insanity. Give basically, it's yeah. exactly it's not insanity. It's like I can give you reasons, but it, the fact is that those reasons actually lead to a course of action that it turns out to be uh, yeah. fundamentally irrational
2: or instrumentally I mean. irrational. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, this is actually really interesting. But if I let this conversation go on any oh, longer, right, then it right. means <laughs> that I gave up my opportunity to make the Straw Vulcan argument. Uh, But for not so so for that reason, I'm going to cut us off now. (laughs) Sounds Um, good, and we will move on to uh, to hear Matt's rationally speaking pick.
0: Welcome back. Every episode, we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has tickled our rational fancy. This time, we ask our guest, Matt Hudson, for his suggestion. Matt?
1: So I'm going to mention three books that I would recommend to other people who are interested in magical thinking uh, and who are sort of general readers. Uh, The first one is Believing in Magic, the Psychology of Superstition by Stuart Weiss. This is from 1997, and it's from an academic press, so it's a little bit more academic, um, but it would actually make a good introductory book for a, a psychology course. And it talks a little bit about uh, scientific methods in psychology and, and that sort of thing. The second one is by one of the psychologists that I, uh, whose work I cite in, in my book. Uh, his name is Bruce Hood, and the book is Super Sense, Why We Believe in the Unbelievable. And he's done a lot of work on uh, children and... Uh, beliefs in essences and magical contagion, and then also voodoo. And then the third one is by Jesse Baring. It's The Belief Instinct, The Psychology of Souls, Destiny, and the Meaning of Life. And that came out last year. And he's another psychologist whose work I mentioned in this book, uh, specifically in, in talking about belief in life after death. Uh, And and he's a very funny writer. So if you're interested in magical thinking and uh, you want to pick up three books on the topic that are engaging and, and pretty comprehensive, I would recommend those three.
2: Thanks, Matt. And we will post links to all of those three on the Rationally Speaking podcast website. Uh, Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Rationally Speaking. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, Matt.
1: Thanks for having me. It was great. It
2: was a pleasure. Uh, Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast
1: is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationally speaking podcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme truth by Todd Rundgren is used by permission. Thank you for listening.